This activity is supported by an unrestricted educational grant from Alcon Vision. This content was captured during a live virtual symposium. Polling took place during the symposium. All right, all right, all right. We're here. So it's uh, right at the touch at 630 uh, Pacific time here in San Francisco. I want to welcome all of our uh, online uh, visitors and viewers. Thank you so much for coming in for round three of the KOL Knockout uh, presented by Evolve Medical Edu Education. We also have a lot of folks uh, right here uh, uh, live uh, in the old U.S. Mint for San Francisco. You know, the gold rush was in 1848, and they made so much gold that they built a mint within a year. They stacked so much gold inside of that mint that they had to build a new building one year later. And then literally two years after that, they had so much gold, they needed a bigger space, and they built this building here. So this building was built, I think, in 1854, around about that time. Uh, and it's amazing. Um, I wish the online folks can see uh, what all we're looking at, but it's, uh, you know, you can't build something like this anymore. It'd just be too expensive with all the, the, the molding and all, everything is just plaster. So a cool space. Happy to be here for round three. Um, for those of you who are just sort of t tuning in, um, this has really been about trying to make, you know, the right IOL decision uh, for complex cataract cases, uh, or some not so complex actually, but just sort of learning about different experiences and different uh, successes with different technologies. So I'm going to be your host. My name is Blake Williamson. I'm the president and managing partner of Williamson Eye in, in Louisiana. Uh, and maybe we can just go down the road and introduce yourself. Yeah, thanks, Blake. My name is Kendall Donaldson, and I practice cornea, cataract, and refractive surgery at the Baskin Palmer Eye Institute in Miami, Florida. And it's a privilege to be here. Thank you so much for including me. Um, hi, my name is Sumitra Candlewall. Thank you for the invitation. Um, great to be here in this beautiful building. Um, I'm from Houston, Texas at Baylor College of Medicine um, and also do cataract, cornea, and refractive. It's been a great couple of days in San Francisco, so excited to continue that tonight. Sumitra is the round two winner, by the way, so <laughs> she's here to win it all tonight. We'll see. And I'm Vance Thompson. I am a refractive and cataract surgeon that practices in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Excited to be here. Let's begin. Oh, was that, was that uh, you guys back there providing some? <laughs> I love that. That's wow. awesome. Is that natural? Who knows? We're in San Francisco. Okay, case one. Y'all ready? We are ready. Let's do this. This is a 55-year-old woman. She's an attorney in town. She's post-LASIK 15 years ago, and she's coming in complaining of blurry vision had the non-dominant eye undercorrected with LASIK when she was 40 and has been wearing monovision contacts for about two years. She really wants to be free of her contact lenses. In her slit lamp exam, she's got a, a two plus NSC. I can see her LASIK flaps there. Really, it's a normal exam. She's got a plus 75 sphere on the right and she's hyperopic with some sill on the left, correctable to around 2030-ish. We look at her uh, OPD3 here, and we see that you know, she's got you know, very little sill, um, pretty normal, um, not much to see there. So you know, before we say what you'd use, really just looking for a general you know, idea, how do you really treat patients who've had success with monovision in the past? Do you always go and say, okay, well, we're gonna do exactly what you had, or might you consider EDOF technologies? What do you do, Kendall? We'll go down the line. 
so patients who have enjoyed their monovision, especially after LASIK, I try to reproduce their, their monovision. I mean, more recently, we've been using the light adjustable lens to help these patients, but also in the past, I've had great success with doing monovision with just standard lenses as well. So I think we do have some options here. Honestly, I don't like to do the EDOF or trifocal technology with these patients with a history of LASIK, you said 15 years ago or so. So those are some of the older lasers, uh, larger spot size lasers, so it, they tend to have more higher order aberrations. So I'm a little concerned about trifocal technology with those patients. So I think you know she enjoyed her monovision and liked the uh, contact lenses after she had the LASIK as well with the monovision, so she's used to that. I'm gonna to try to maintain that, but I'd probably do a light adjustable lens. I know a lot of people don't have that available in their practice, so I think you know, also standard lenses could be something reasonable there in doing the monovision. So I, I do prefer some form of monovision or light adjustable. Perfect, same question for you. Don't tell me what lens you're gonna choose, but let me know your general thoughts about this. You know, success with monovision um, in a patient who um, is still phakic is very different than pseudophakic monovision. And so I also wanna make sure, like I think she called that she was 55 years old. And yeah, I think so. I think those patients have some accommodation. The thing about this patient that's interesting is she's a little bit hyperopic. And so I'm gonna assume that she's not using that much of her accommodation. And I'd be curious, you know, is she wearing a contact lens in both eyes? Is she, does she have much left? But I do get a little bit, you know, a 65-year-old who's been doing successful monovision I think is a little different than a 55-year-old. So I would wanna counsel her a little bit about the fact that we may not do true monovision. We may not, may do more of a mini monovision. And then you have to be very careful because a lot of times when they have their monovision contact lenses in and they're doing um, you know, a 55, they're able to cheat and go you know, full 1.5 to 1.75 offset, but we don't wanna do that for somebody for their lifelong. And that's where, once again, the light adjustable will be a nice option. So I think if I counseled this patient and talked to her about it and she was like, no, I really, really want to have something where I'm, you know, you're going to guarantee me that I'm not going to have to adjust to this five years, ten years down the line. Then I may even talk about an EDLF for her. Um, and I think her, her topography looks reasonable with it. And I think it's all about, you know, expectations with it. So my first preference, I would, we're not going to talk about lenses, but my first preference would be to go with that. But I think this needs a different conversation than, say, a 65-year-old. Yes, do you agree? I mean, you know, people who've done monovision, oftentimes in their 40s, they did that because that's all they could do. That was the only choice then. But now we have these lenses that can give you full range, you know, with both eyes. Do you, is that something that you think about? Or if they've had success, you go with it and, and that's what you're going to do. So I always present to these monovision patients in a way of understanding, you know, just like you said, with monofocal monovision, it's way different than the monovision that they enjoyed. As a matter of fact, I'll tell them, once you do a monofocal implant, you now have the reading range of a 75-year-old. And 75-year-olds don't have great luck, typically, with monovision. And so that's why I also will lean towards something that is adding some spherical aberration, like the light adjustable lens, and consider monovision in those patients also. So it's a it's kind of a different form of monovision. It's almost like, you know, some monofocal qualities, but some EDOF qualities too. And so I will consider it, but I'm not afraid necessarily to consider a modern day EDOF and occasionally even a trifocal in patients who've had previous LASIK. I 
as you did, can quantify those high-order aberrations. And you never know sometimes, because you need the topography, you need the epithelial map, you need that tear film. And once you've optimized that tear film, sometimes they, their HOA index goes down and they can have an EDOF or a trifocal. And these modern-day EDOFs and trifocals in balancing people is so exciting. So I, I, I love, you know, monovision in younger people, but not in 75-year-olds. So I'll consider it, but all these options are on the table when I go into a conversation like this. So what's your plan? You got to choose something. Give me the lens of choice. Kendall, what are you going to do? We also need to know about her ocular surface. And of Healthy. course, a woman of this age possibly could have some dry eye and things like that as well. So, I mean, I would do the light adjustable lens in this particular patient and really spend some time just setting reasonable expectations and making sure that she wanted to partner with me to go through this process to really customize her vision. You know, so if she was willing to do that, I think we could get the best, uh, the best final result with the light adjustable lens and just really optimizing the ocular surface in preparation for that process and continuing that throughout the treatment process. Because of course the light adjustable lens requires extra post-op visits, so she's gonna have to continue this uh, ocular surface routine throughout. So, um, so yeah, and I would target, visit? yeah, and I would target, I mean, likely a little um, minus for the non-dominant eye and then dial up accordingly to whatever she would tolerate during the trial frames and the post-operative process. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's the nice thing about the light adjustable lens. And I think for those who don't have the light adjustable lens is something, I think also, you know, once you set expectations, I've had some patients that just don't want to come back to see me for the light adjustable lens treatments. That's fine. I understand. <laughs> I'm not that nice. No, no, no. It's just, it's a drive, you know, and, and they, the way that I tell it to them is, look, through this process, I love Kendall's comment about the journey, but it's like, you have to be patient, I have to be patient. We have to be patient together. Um, and with that, sometimes they elect, let me pick for something. So I think for this patient, I think to understand you know, what her goals are, I think that a, a, you know, a little monofocal plus, perhaps something like an eye hands, for example, could be a nice safe option for her. I think an EDOF is an option if everything's perfect on her cornea, knowing that she needs to understand some of the you know, contrast issues with that. And I think either one of those options is a good backup if light adjustable is not what she's looking for. Okay. So for me, I separate these lenses into cornea adjustable lenses and optic adjustable <laughs> lenses. And there's only one optic adjustable, the light adjustable lens. But what I'm thinking about is how am I going to take that football in for the touchdown when I don't hit their refractive endpoint? So I pretty much have done every one of these in a situation like this. They all have their pluses and minuses, but what we need to remember is she's had previous LASIK. And when she's had previous LASIK, her refractive outcome, especially with PRK, is not as accurate. So I gotta be able to take that football in for a touchdown. And am I gonna be lifting that flap, doing, a, I don't like recutting. And so there's some special considerations in this lady who's had previous LASIK. And so I probably would be leaning towards a light adjustable lens myself. If she had, it's interesting, she had an old blade flap, it amazes me how easy they are to lift, less chance of epithelial ingrowth. And if she really wanted to be balanced, I would consider an EDOF. That's how you know people have been doing LASIK for a long time. They're always okay with lifting a 20-year-old flap because they've yeah. done it a million times no problem. very successfully. Uh, and I'm all, meanwhile, I'm always scared to lift one that's like beyond two years. Uh, so, uh, okay, we're going to vote um, which of our contestants that uh, 
that you think made the most uh, uh, appealing argument. It looks like most of us are, are dealing with LAL. You know, I think that um, for me, um, the LAL can be a heavy lift. And uh, you referenced the journey. I know that you've spoken about that really in our last uh, KOL knockout. Um, and it's important to kind of understand that because, you know, if you, the patient personality in psychology is critical to think about um, in those situations. There are some patients who you feel like you can, you know, really understand everything that's going to be required. There's other patients that you say, you know, we're probably going to be okay. This was a myopic LASIK. You know, it was 15 years ago. Uh, the topography tomography looks reasonable. Like, we're, before we had this LAL, just a few years ago, we were doing fine for the most part, right? And so, all of a sudden, the LAL becomes the right answer for all these because we have it. And there's nothing wrong with that either. But that's, for me, you know, that's been kind of the thing is trying to pick that patient. And especially since now, my optometrists are doing most of the adjustments, right? And so, you know, they were sort of, I'm doing the surgery and I'm passing that off. And so, you got to be really sort of thoughtful about um, uh, who you're choosing. So, here's what I did. Looks like we got a a winner. We got a thumbs up in the back. Um, So, I actually did the IC8 um, in the non-dominant eye with an LAL in the dominant eye. I targeted minus 50 in this IC8 aphthera eye and Plano in the LAL eye. And I did that because, you know, listening to colleagues, uh, really, who've in Europe, we have some European colleagues here, Mr. Aston Martin right there from Cyprus. Uh, you didn't think I was going to call you out. I did. Um, you know, <laughs> they've had uh, this for a while. And, and I was saying, gosh, this is just the best thing since sliced bread for all the complex corneas. They said, yeah, but Blake, honestly, if patients who've enjoyed monovision, this works well. You should, you should think about this. And I said, well, gosh, th- this patient could benefit. So the final MRX uh, was 20-20 J3 in both eyes um, at the three-month post-op period. But the patient was really struggling with that IC8 aphthera eye. Um, she was just... You know, saying, yes, I can, I can see well on your little chart inside of this room, but when I cover that eye and look out my LAL eye, uh, this eye isn't as good. And I said, well, you need to stop doing that, of course. And she said, well, I can't help it. And so, you know, because of the dimming and because of, you know, um, her comparisons, um, she's just been kind of struggling with that. So we'll, we'll see what we do. We're considering a lens exchange for the LAL and the non-dominant eye. So it sounds like maybe I should have done what, you know, our panel suggested. I mean, what? hindsight is twenty twenty, right? I mean, I think that could be certainly a reasonable answer. But patients always kind of do compare both eyes. And when you have two disparate technologies, you know, there is a tendency to do that. But I think we also have to acknowledge that most people still are not using the LAL, you know, that they don't have that available in their practice. You know, I think, as mentioned, we can use like a monofocal plus or a mon- monofocal lenses and even, you know, optimize the surface, get multiple measurements and do very well with those two. You know, I remember being very frustrated that I didn't have the LAL for a long time, and so these patients could still do very well, but that's certainly a... Two thoughts, yeah. and uh, you know, one of them, one of the things I love about the LAL, and I'll see this with some of these ranchers that come in and say, I know, you know, I've learned about this monovision, but I like the idea of this light adjustable lens, and I just want you to bang them out there to distance, and I'll wear readers. And they come back, and they're like, okay, you said I was going to need readers, and I don't, mm-hmm. Doc, and I'm happy. And one of the reasons is this extended depth of focus pattern, this, this spherical aberration, this symmetrical defocus curve based on negative spherical aberration. It is like the aberration that's very prominent in us that gives humans good depth of focus with their natural lens. And because it's a symmetrical 
uh, defocus, you get good, actually quite distance, good distance vision, even when you're going for that minus one. A lot of these patients are 20-25, minus 0.75. They're oftentimes 20-20. And so this, this symmetrical defocus pattern and getting about 1.37 diopters of EDOF right out of the box and still getting that 20-20, a lot of these patients read a little bit better than you think. And you don't want to guarantee that, uh, but that's one of the things I like about it. And my question about the Aptera eye is you targeted minus 0.5, and bravo on your goal, but did you hit that goal? Yeah, so we got it. So the, the, they, were, they were minus 50. Uh, I've kind of moved between 50 and 75, yep. trying to cheat more near. Um, but, you know, really, they didn't really have comparisons or, or, or challenges with far versus near in general. It was just that overall contrast thing. You know, when you, when you, when you try to pin patients down, is it up close or far away that you don't like? And they say, yeah, I don't know. It's just kind of everywhere. And it was with both eyes open? Yeah, with both eyes yeah. open. Okay. They would notice. And then dimming, so. I mean, dimming was, and in the study when we placed the lens, dimming is an issue. We had that. Um, but, you know, it's different when someone is comparing it to a light-adjustable lens eye, too. The optics are different, and, and we think we all agree. I will say that everyone who thinks, oh, my God, light-adjustable lens for every single patient, there have been a few LASIK patients. I kind of wish I hadn't done them on. You know, hyperopic LASIK patients are a whole other ballgame. Um, sometimes they have very unstable refractions because of their epithelial remodel. And I've had to wait like four, five, six eternity months um, to lock in some of those patients. So be aware of the changing refraction post-refractive patients, especially hyperopic LASIK. Love it. Okay, hold on to your seats, folks. Here's case two. 55-year-old man, very type A. He comes in, big successful uh, commercial real estate guy. Um, he comes in seeking help with his near vision. He says, Dr. Williamson, I had LASIK 20 years ago by your dad. It was awesome. I loved it. Uh, but man, I'm in reading glasses. They make me feel old. I don't want reading glasses. Everybody says, you're the guy. Not only is he a pilot, but he starts showing me pictures of his PC-12 Pilatus. And I'm like, okay, obviously you're a very successful man. I get it. Okay, calm down. <laughs> Back off, buddy. Um, and so I'm like, uh, you know, of course, I'm going to have to deal with this guy. Nice guy. Can't help himself. Um, his eye exam's normal. He's got trace NSC. This is really more of like a, a CLR, custom lens replacement vibe. Um, but he's got barely any prescription there, okay? Um, we look at his tomography on his pentacam, and you see he's got, you know, what you'd expect from a myopic ablation. Everything looks pretty normal here, just a little pinch of cell in both eyes, not too much. Um, so just in general, what would be your first choice? This isn't like your final answer, but what are you thinking with, uh, with a patient like this? Vance, I'm gonna start on that side. I'm not gonna pick on Kindle first every time. We're gonna kind of go down your row. So the pilot part adds another dimension, you know, and, and, and then of course having the previous LASIK. If he dilates well enough, this is another case that could be wonderful for the light adjustable lens. I would wanna quantify his high order aberrations uh, because I would consider an EDOF in him also. Um, would I go to trifocality? It depends on, is this, is he a professional pilot? I mean, does he, or is he just He's a real it? estate guy, but he, he flies yeah. once a week. Yeah, and so I, I have had very good luck with, you know, both EDOF and trifocals in post-LASIK. So I would want to quantify his high order aberrations, map his epithelium, look at his tear film, 
And then I would present to him the idea of LAL. He might not be excited about monovision. Sometimes guys and pilots aren't. And then we would be talking about would we be going to EDOF or trifocality, but I first want to see how multifocal his cornea is before I decide how much multifocality I want to add in his implant. You know, the fact that he is frustrated reading, I always like to take that word and just figure out what is the definition of reading to this patient? Like, you know, is it the reading that he does on the weekends? And, and you know, maybe we can work with that differently than is it the actual, like, dashboard when he flies, um, because I think sometimes that allows you to think, okay, you know, is this something where I'm going to do, like, mini monovision is going to be okay for him, and he's okay with wearing a contact lens when he just pilots, or is it really more the intermediate? And I think, you know, the nice thing, once again, about light adjustable lens is that um, you can kind of play with things afterwards, but I mean, you know, this type A pilot that Blake's obviously excited to see in this clinic once <laughs> a week for the next four months, I mean, that sounds great. You know? optometrist. My exactly, optometrist. exactly. So you have to be, like, a little conscientious, too, about their patient's level. So I think the nice thing about light adjustables, it'll give him that distance vision, and then he can kind of work around with what is it that's going to benefit him for near vision. And I think, once again, if, if that's not a technology that people have, which is okay, I think focusing on what his goal is for reading and when he wants to read would be the difference for me between, say, doing like a little mini monovision with like a monofocal plus, doing just distance with a monofocal plus or an EDOF. And once again, I think that's based on his aberrations. I wouldn't put an EDOF necessarily if he had a lot of, but he looked pretty good on the topography actually, so. Yeah. Okay, so I think <laughs> I must have a jaded per perception of life because this kind of patient, a 55-year-old, almost clear lens, this is a disaster in the making. Okay, the younger the patient and the clearer the lens, the more likely you are to have a disaster here because their expectations, this is a guy who has super high expectations. He expects, a big plane, very big plane. Yeah. He expects 20-10 vision <laughs> at all times throughout life, okay? So you're gonna spend hours with this person just setting reasonable expectations. He doesn't have to have surgery, okay? But I, I could say no, I could choose not to operate on You're kidding. Well, you could choose to educate <laughs> this guy, and he has to be a partner in this process. He's an educated guy. You know, he's super high maintenance type A, and he needs to help make this decision. So he takes the responsibility and shares that responsibility with you. Yeah. So I think that's the most important base. And once he realizes that, I, I could never put an EDF or trifocal in this patient, honestly, because you're going to lose MTF. This is a guy who wants extreme contrast. You know, if he loses a little contrast, which he will with every EDOF lens and every trifocal lens, which we can have great outcomes with, but that's not going to be okay for so him. Kendall will never, but, ever. But let's be, let's be, he came oh, to you looking so for an answer. He, he, so don't, he, don't, he, he wants to get rid of the reading glasses. An yeah. He, didn't, he, didn't wanna, he, he wanted to get rid of reading glasses. It might be unrealistic. But if I had to do surgery and he really wanted to be a partner with me in this process, I would tell him light adjustable is the way to go and you're gonna need some reading glasses for small print, but I can get you seeing great, the very best possible at distance, and there's data, and I would show him and share the data with him to show him that after refractive surgery in the past, I'm gonna give you the very best, 20, even better than 20-20 possibly vision. You get some intermediate vision, and you're gonna need some reading glasses for small print. Let's be realistic, or we're not gonna do this at all. One of the things that I think is important in a case like this, and I want you real quick, I want you all to vote while Vance is talking. <laughs> yeah. take a, take, go, ahead, go ahead and no. vote online, folks. Everybody but when, in, you, in office. when you look at a topography like that, it's hard to tell that even had LASIK. Yeah, so this, this, this wasn't a very high 
correction. So I'm predicting his corneal HOAs aren't gonna be that high. The other thing is when we don't hit the refractive endpoint with an EDOF or a trifocal, or even occasionally with an LAL, that we're sitting there six months to a year and they're not exactly where they wanna be. So we have a decision to make, are we gonna operate on that cornea? And so these low LASIK corrections on these EDOF and trifocal patients actually do quite well. So when you see a low LASIK that someone had previously, they often do quite well. And I see people with no LASIK that shouldn't have a multifocal. So that's why we gotta quantify the multifocality and the cornea, the HOAs, before we make the decision. You know? Love it. So, you know, you said absolutely, positively, no multifocal or EDOF. What did I do? I did the exact opposite, right? So I go symphony opti blue in the dominant left eye, synergy in the non-dominant, because this guy said, Blake, I don't care. I just don't want to wear reading glasses. And I said, well, I got a thing for you. And pretty much, kind of, sort of, pretty much most of the time, I will get you out of reading glasses, right? One month post-op, this guy is 2025 minus J1+. I'm high-fiving. I'm doing backflips. Look at me. I'm the man. But... This guy really cannot tolerate his distance blur. He's got these night halos that we talked about several, you know, for several minutes before. I said, didn't we talk about that? He goes, yeah, yeah, you told me. But, you know, it's been a month, and I, I figured it wouldn't be as bad. Um, you look at his MRX there. He's myopic. Okay, he's myopic in both eyes. He's got a, a, a little sill in both eyes as well. He says, well, you know what? Let's just give you another month. Calm, you know, you're doing all right. We're, we're going to get through this together. I'm going to take care of you no matter what. Let's give it another month. So two months post-op, he's still very unhappy with his distance vision, okay? He says things like, worst decision ever. Uh, uh, he's not neuroadapting. Uh, loves his near vision. Super happy, really, with either eye. He just wants better distance vision. He does have one plus PCO, uh, OU. That worst decision ever thing, um, you know, even at two months, you know, a lot of folks will say, you know, wait three, four months to neuroadapt, blah, blah, blah. But if they're thinking this is the worst thing ever, you, 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 you know, that's a hot potato. You need to go ahead and fix that as soon as you can. That's, that's been our experience. So what do you do now? Um, start with you, Symmetra. What are you going to do? Are you going to gag this guy? I would definitely do a contact lens trial on okay. him because he's myopic. I think the spherical equivalent is like a minus 0.75 and a minus 0.5. And I think especially, I mean, we, with both the symphony and the synergy, we really need to get that distance. And so I would see, and I make him go home with the contact lens and see how he does. And, you know, the thing about it is if he tolerates, if he likes his distance vision with the contact lens, that's great. If he still complains of the issues with night halos, I actually, it has to be a pretty good PCO for a patient like this for me to want to yag it. I would be inclined to, to exchange the dominant eye for, for a monofocal. I think the eye hands, I, we've actually done a lot of exchanges for patients um, similar to this with the eye hands and the dominant eye. They've done really well. It's not what they went in for, um, but they came out with, with good distance vision. So contact lens trial, if yes. he loves his vision, go ahead and do the LASIK touch-up. Correct. If he doesn't love the vision, you're thinking lens exchange. You guys that's disagree my, with that's, that, or is that most that's my exchange in the dominant? Eye. Just the dominant. Eye. Okay. Dominant. Oh, I, I, but I guess I, you know, one plus PCO uh, concerns me before an enhancement. So, if I did a contact lens trial and they were happy, uh, I probably would be doing the YAG because if they're happy with that contact lens trial, I know I have a high chance of making them happy. Mm -hmm. So I would be doing the YAG, making sure I understand that final refractive endpoint, getting it really sharp then taking the football in for the... Then do the laser. Now, where it gets complicated, though, 
is lots of times because of that one plus PCO and you're wondering if it's not the right lens, that contact lens trial doesn't go well. And so I do believe in temporary glasses or contact lens trials in these situations, but lots of times you can even make that decision in the lane. How is that image? And I predict with him that image was not good. Mm -hmm. And so that's where it gets tough because now you're at a crossroads. Do we do this YAG and make the exchange tougher? And so I've seen actually very good luck with EDOF like Symphony OptiBlue uh, or Vividi in a post-LASIK case like this. Um, I don't know if I would have been doing that strong of a hybrid, you know, multifocal EDOF with the synergy uh, in this situation. Well, I'm learning that now. Thank, yeah. you. Thank you so much. Yep. <laughs> yep. Uh, but, but again, I will say, if you, if you do that refraction and they're crisp, you know, wonderful. Now you, you know, know how to take the football in for the touchdown, yag, and then fine tune. But so, if you're not crisp, you got a problem. So, so, that, so I agree completely. And uh, that's what I did. So the patient was happy with his vision in the left eye, both near and far, but the right eye was a problem. I performed the contact lens trial just like y'all recommended for that right eye. Um, and the patient really didn't notice a massive improvement at all in the quality at all. He still complained of, of halos and everything. So now I'm thinking IOL exchange. So this begs the question. Now we're going to take the lens out because that contact lens trial didn't work. I'm not thinking go ahead and yag and, and LASIK this, this bad boy. I'm thinking this is a hot potato. I got to get it out. What are you going to exchange it for? Kendall, are you thinking about a different multifocal? Are you thinking about an EDOF, maybe a light adjustable, a monofocal, an IC8? What are you thinking? Well, I definitely would not choose a different multifocal in this situation. <laughs> I mean, that would keep me up at night for months. Um, so I'd be thinking either a light adjustable lens or um, I like the eye hands, as you mentioned. I think, you know, a monofocal plus can be a good option in these patients. But I would prefer to do the LAL. I mean, obviously, we're charging him some money here for the LAL. As and spending a lot more time with him as well. Yeah. Several, you know, Yeah, but weeks. he's invested in your relationship now. You guys have a pretty yes. tight relationship. We're best friends. No, we're best friends. Maybe you can get him a deal on the LAL, we're and then you're, it's like a, a no-brainer. But I, I think I would go for the LAL and offer him a little bit of a deal for yeah. his troubles and say, you know, he's a, we haven't charged now him a, dime a family member very, with you yeah. or something with yeah. you. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, I would. Yeah, I mean, that brings up a really good point, which is, um, I mean, everyone's threshold for what type of lens they put in post-LASIK is different. But I think if you're comfortable with IOL exchange, a bag-to-bag -bag IOL exchange, which everybody should be, I think that you can really feel a little bit more comfortable maybe putting in more EDOFs in patients. It's not to say that you should put them in every single patient, but it's just the realization that there's going to be patients you never predicted would have a challenge and, and like a, you know, an exchange for, you know, an, another lens is something that can be done fairly straightforward, especially early on, the first few months after. Um, but I, I said earlier the eye hands, we've had actually, we were, um, you do eye hands. we will, so we've, we actually have several patients, um, probably like 15, 20 that we've done that on who had bilateral synergies placed in the community. Um, and they just, the distance vision just wasn't as good. And so a few of us exchanged the dominant eye for an, you know, uh, OptiBlue and the company helped us out, helped the patient out with that. And some of them still weren't happy. And we ended up with an eye hand, so now we're kind of going straight to eye hands. And the eye hand synergy combination, as long as they understand the difference between the eyes, has been pretty good, actually. The distance is very good. Vance, what are you going to put in? Can you remind me, was it the 
EDOFI that he's satisfied with? It was the, uh, the Symphony I he is satisfied he's with. He's satisfied with. So you've proven with one plus PCO he's satisfied with it. And by the way, one of the reasons I'm careful sometimes about contact lens trials is sometimes a half diopter of astigmatism matters. Mm. And that's why sometimes I'll be using temporary spectacles for them to go out and experience that at night so we get that little bit of cylinder you know, also. Yeah. And again, in the lane, I can oftentimes figure out if that half diopter of cylinder is visually significant or not, or if giving them the spherical covalent in a contact is the way to go. But if he's already happy with the Symphony OptiBlue, and when you put that in both eyes, it can be pretty wonderful reading, and this guy really wants the reading. Uh, so I'd probably say, well, you're happy with that one. Let's put that in this one. The same one as both eyes? Yep. Cool, very cool, okay. So what did I do? Well, I did a monofocal plus, kind of like uh, some of you suggested. I, I chose the, the, an EDOF, which is the, the Ray-1 EMV from Rayner, targeted Plano for this non-dominant eye since he was happy with both distance and near in his dominant. Despite this, he ended up minus one sphere. So this keeps going on and on. That's his residual. At post-op month one from lens exchange, he was still unhappy with his distance vision and his PCO was getting worse. So what would you do now? Would you, would you yag this patient? Would you do a contact lens trial? Would you do yet another ILO exchange? This is like the, the gift that keeps on giving. You predicted this. This is going to be a long thing. We're all going to rent a time machine and go back and do LAL on this patient. Or, I mean, you've, now it's been like refractive error, myopic times two. I mean, that's, that's tough. So uh, I'll save it in the interest of time. We got two cases left. You know, um, the patient loved his distance vision when I did a minus one contact lens trial. So different from the first contact lens trial, when I slapped the minus one, he goes, thank you, Jesus. This is fantastic. I'm so happy. So I went ahead and performed a YAG. Um, and now I'm awaiting a PRK touch-up in, in this eye. So PRK, unpredictable in a, in a post-LASIK eye. So, uh, and he and I had a long discussion saying, listen, I'm going to PRK you uh, for your minus one, minus 125-ish. Uh, but here's the deal. You know, you may still need some type of spectacle or something other and he's actually okay I think he's just sick of seeing me so uh, that's kind of where we are Vance yeah so um, I'm interested in the lens you chose uh, because I almost consider it a monofocal plus plus I mean it's right there at the EDOF category so he now has bilateral EDOF and I would be mapping that epithelium before I would do that PRK touch-up. If it's 50 microns all the way across, like our natural epithelium, it's gonna be nice and accurate. But if it's irregular, like some post-LASIK can be, it's gonna be just fine lifting that flap and taking that football in for the touchdown after the ag, and he's gonna be happy. So you would lift the flap even though it's, 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 it's 15 years old? I would do it if it was 25. I'm saying it to you yes. in North Dakota, yep. South Dakota, yep. right? I've, I've done it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get convinced my dad to come in and do one. Yeah. <laughs> hey, okay. It was his case to begin with, right? Oh, he actually, exactly. He's, he started this. He's going to finish this damn thing. Although I would be careful lifting a flap after three years. Uh, <laughs> people, yeah. people, 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 you know, they've had great success doing it. So. Sonia, you published a really nice study that showed the increased uh, incidence of epithelial and growth. In and the, the, the turning point was at three years, where the, the risk of epithelial growth goes way up after three years. Also, the risk with uh, microkeratome-created flaps is much higher than with femtosecond-created flaps because of the little, you know, um, the way that the edge of the flap fits into the little um, 
you know, right. it's, it's a perfect square. Yes, what, what, yeah. what, what percent of patients do get epi growth? It's low, but it's it goes a minority? Up. Yep. I, it's, I, I, I tell patients that they have a 10 to 15% chance Oh, wow. So it's, it's high, but I also tell them I know how to deal with it. And so getting an accurate refractive outcome is important. Once you start doing PRK, and if it's the epithelium is irregular and you don't hit your endpoint, now you're doing PRK over PRK. And now you're starting to worry about haze. And mitomycin helps, but now that's a way worse situation than dealing with epithelium that I know what to deal with, how to deal with it. I just know this patient's epi ingrowth rate is going to be higher than 15%. <laughs> just knowing from this guy. And we know the risk of haze. The haze is going to be low yeah. because he had a very small ablation to begin with, and now we're doing another very small ablation. I think he's still okay. I'll let you guys know Wisdom. how this goes next Wisdom. year. Fear. Uh, Fear. Next AAO. I'll let you know how it goes. Yeah. Okay, two cases left. This is case three. This is a 59-year-old man. Uh, comes in, he's had keratoconus, he is satisposed uh, epi on cross-linking, he had that performed here, uh, here in California, I think in Los Angeles, and also had simultaneous intacts as well, this is uh, two years back. Um, he came back to Louisiana, where I live, and he comes to see me because his vision has been changing, he's got some PSC cataracts now. He uh, wants refractive cataract surgery, he says, Blake, I really don't want to be in glasses all the time. I don't mind cheaters, but it'd be nice not to be in full-time scleral lenses. Is there anything that you can do for me? Everyone says that uh, uh, you're the guy for that. I've seen two other doctors, and, and I'm like, so I'm, I'm your third choice. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Uh, I don't know what that means, but so you look at his refraction. He's quite nearsighted. He's got a bunch of sill. Um, he's got somewhat functional vision, but that PSC is bothering him. Um, you, see his, you see that in the slit lamp exam, of course, and he's got some well-placed intact um, OU. So looking at his tomography, um, it looks like a keratoconus patient. Um, his uh, uh, astigmatism is, is pretty similar with what he's got in his uh, glasses correction. Um, and uh, you're trying to make a plan for this guy. So what's your plan? So Kendall, back to you. We'll kind of go down the row. What are you thinking? Uh, for this person, is this a monofocal sclerals all the way despite his request? Is this a monotoric because his, uh, his, his, his sill on the, on the tomography topography match very well with the uh, biometry and so that, that, that's a good thing. Are you going full on LAL or ICA? What are you thinking? So does he wear contact lenses at all? He just wears spectacles. Just spectacles, no contact lenses, so you don't have to be worried about him possibly trying to put a contact lens on. So we could consider a torque, especially since he has some re, um, refractive astigmatism there. You could do an IC8. I mean, IC8 has become quite popular with these patients that have a lot of irregular astigmatism in the last couple of years. Um, I'm not doing LAL with patients with this degree of irregular astigmatism because I just think the expectations aren't going to be met there. Um, so he has to realize that his vision's not going to be perfect. I mean, I always tried to leave, leave these patients just a little bit on the myopic side. So I would uh, consider a monofocal torque or an IC8. And if I did the IC8, I'd likely be targeting a little bit myopic with this patient, maybe a minus 0.75. Um, in both eyes, IC8 in both eyes, or? So I would start with the non-dominant eye if I could, and if he was really happy there, I would consider doing an IC8 in both eyes in a patient like this. I mean, we're not thinking about the FDA trials, which were done for presbyopia. This is off-label off -label. for an aphthera 
um, you know, as it is. So, but a lot of people are, are having excellent success doing bilateral apteras in, in patients like this. So again, I'd always try to aim a little bit myopic and start with the, the non-dominant eye. So final answer, monotorque, or you think an ICA? I mean, I think you could do either. Yeah, I mean, is. especially since he's got three and a half diopters of astigmatism with the rule that's pretty much lined up, I think you could be successful with either. So final, your family, I would Your say, family member, what would you do? I would probably do an IC8 and okay. target a little bit myopic. Dimitri? Yeah, you know, I think um, going, one of the things I like to know about is what's their kind of habitual wear, you know? Um, and if their access lines up in these keratoconus patients with their habitual wear, so not just the wear that they got, sometimes the optometrist will refract them, you know, and they've got the cataract and everything, but if they got their habitual wear and it was in the same alignment and they have this, um, and it, it lines up with the topography. I think a toric makes a lot of sense. I agree, the light adjustable lens, we have done that on a few milder keratoconus patients, and it, it, sometimes, it sometimes works, but sometimes the expectations are just not, it's not the, the same as anyone else's LAL, and this is a high amount of sill. It is with the rule, um, so you may get lucky with it, but you may not, and for this patient, I would probably do the IC8 in the non-dominant eye, and I would actually lean towards doing a monofocal toric in the dominant eye. I am a little concerned, and maybe it's just from putting them in, in with the dimming effect um, bilaterally in this patient who already struggles a little bit with challenges with probably a little bit of night vision from his irregular astigmatism. So I would stick with the monofocal toric in the dominant eye. Nice, and in the left eye, you're gonna do an IC8? Yes. Okay. Dr. Thompson? So, a case like this, I want to understand how much of their blur is their lens and how much of their blur is their cornea. And that's why I really need that gas perm over refraction. And then if that manifest refraction is what it is, and that gas perm refraction takes them to 2025 or sometimes even 2020, you know that corneal blur is playing a significant role. And there's only one lens on Mother Earth that can help both corneal and lenticular blur, and that's the IC8. Um, I have a feeling that that gas perm over-refraction probably isn't gonna make a ton of difference, but a little bit of difference, so there's gonna be a judgment call. And if the gas perm over-refraction didn't help very much, and I'm thinking about something like an LAL, the first thing I do is call the company and say, has anybody ever adjusted through intacts? because I know that we need, in general, we want a seven millimeter pupil, and we'll hedge that, but that inner zone of the intacts, if it wasn't perfectly centered, is probably gonna be affecting the light, and that's where I get concerned about a case like this in the LAL. You might be the first person to do an LAL through an intact, and you wanna understand what's happening. Is it attenuating that beam? So if the gas permeable refraction helped a lot, I'd do IC8 for sure in one eye. And in the other eye, I probably would be leaning towards the monofocal toric that you guys were talking about. Okay. You know what an important question to ask would be though, before he developed his PSCs, I don't remember how long ago, how, how long ago did he have his CXL, his epi on CXL was two years prior in Los Angeles. Was he happy with his, with his vision after that in yes. his glasses? Yeah. So that's a good sign. The fact that he was happy with his vision and he had that astigmatism in his glasses I mean, means that he'd likely be happy with the monofocal torque. I, I agree 100%. That's a, that's a it's just we have all this fancy technology, mm -hmm. and sometimes it's just so nice to get that gas perm over refraction. It helps me understand if a dry eye is visually significant 
or is it epithelium, or is it truly stromal irregularity? So it does help guide my treatment. Perfect. So it uh, sounds like we have a winner. Everybody voted. Thank you. Uh, so here's what I did. So um, yeah, I uh, agree with the panel. I actually chose uh, monofocal uh, Torx OU, actually. So I did the Invista uh, monofocal Torx OU. Um, and I, I think the biggest thing is after talking to Jack Parker, who does just about as many intacts as anybody that I know of, he said, Blake, once you have those intacts in there, you can really trust where, where that you know, cornea is, actually. Um, and if you have multiple devices showing you that you know, you're, you're right on the money in terms of your tericity, uh, you can feel good with that as well. And this is a guy who said, listen, just try to max me out for distance. I don't care about wearing cheaters. And so that's why I didn't go IC8. I think IC8 probably would have done just fine. But in this guy, I said, let me just go ahead and, and just max everything out for distance um, with, uh, with monofocal torques. And that's what we did. He did very, very well. So he's been very happy. So um, final case here. Um, so, okay, 71-year-old guy. He's got a history of eight-cut RK. He's got T-cuts. It's been 25 years now. He's got cornelectasia. He's got three-plus NSC in that right eye. Left eye, he had done at our center about 10 years prior, so it's just the right eye that has the cataract. He's desiring the best possible distance vision, and he said, listen, it'd be nice not to have to wear glasses all the time. I don't mind wearing readers. And if you look at his script down there, he kind of, sort of, if we nailed that right eye, he'd kind of have a built-in monovision. It'd be kind of super-duper monovision, but you'd be surprised how many people walk around with minus three. Um, so this is what we're dealing with here. So it's just, just this right eye. This is a diseased cornea. You know, when you look at this, this is one of those things that you're just kind of bummed. I'm looking over here. It looks like he's got 19.5 diopters of cylinder there uh, on that right eye. And uh, you see sort of his uh, anterior segment shine fluke, um, just looking like maybe what you'd expect. So a very diseased cornea in this right eye that he's asking me to fix. And so I'm curious, Vance, let's start with you. What's your approach? You know, RK, you've seen a few of those folks. Uh, when they have ectasia, but they're coming to you 25 years later saying, hey, you, you know, you did my RK or someone did my RK and I want to see like that again. Um, what's your thought with that? Will you, will you, you know, do you have certain IOLs that are your go-to? Are you thinking about small aperture um, versus just a straight up monofocal? What are you thinking? So having seen a lot of RK and performed a lot of post-RK cataract surgery, most topographies don't look like that. And so this patient, we want to discuss with them, are you an eye rubber? And are you someone who's, or they're face planting into a pillow all night? But RK doesn't cause a topography like that. There's something else going on. And so this is as much a keratoconus case as it is an RK case. And that gas perm over a fraction, so was he, what was it, 2200 best corrected? Um, and so he had that cataract. I predict that gas perm is going to take him a long ways. And so I think probably the only lens, short of a corneal transplant, the only lens that can help this guy is the IC8. Okay. And it just seems like that's a, a, a lot of irregular astigmatism. Depends on what his personality is and expectations. But I would be informing and, and consenting him that if you don't want to go to corneal transplant, I would be doing the IC8 but you may still need a corneal transplant. Dimitri? You know, I'm concerned about what his progression has been like, because like you said, this is not in 
RK patient. This is an ectasia. I mean, 21 diopters superiorly and 72. I mean, that's actually tough for even our best scleral lens fitters to fit that degree. It's not the 72 steepness, it's the 21 flatness. They'd have to go with like a bitoric prose or something like that. And so, you know, this is something where I'd be a little concerned about putting anything but a monofocal because I feel like this patient is heading towards um, a transplant. And I don't want to do a transplant in this patient. Let's say they were just a patient had horrible ectasia, like 85, couldn't wear a scleral. I think doing a transplant followed by cataract surgery would make a lot of sense. Um, but anyone who's tried, who's done a transplant in an RK patient knows that it's not something you want to do if you can avoid it because it's sometimes challenging to close the incisions. And so for this patient, because of the RK, I would try my best with a monofocal. But I, I'm the most concerned about the fact that he's um, so steep, probably progressing, probably thin. Um, and, and, you know, that's probably going in the direction of a transplant at some point. Kendall? Yeah, I mean, putting a contact lens on him, I think, was a great idea, Vance, and especially introducing him to the idea that he may need a contact lens. I think he has unreasonable expectations. So he's a guy who's telling you he wants this great distance vision, but it's not really possible. And so spending some time really helping him understand what the situation is is so, so key. I mean, I like the idea of an aptera lens in this patient, but it's not gonna neutralize that degree of astigmatism no matter what we do. I mean, you can teach him the idea of a pinhole and that that can improve him to some degree, but there is no perfect answer for him. And I think he has really unreasonable expectations even from what you've told us so far. So, I mean, just taking a while with him to make sure that he understands the situation here. But, you know, so, I mean, an app there would be reasonable. I would target a little bit um, myopic or even a monofocal lens. I mean, you know, he's gonna pay a lot of money for an app there as the other problem, and so that raises the expectations. And so I might even consider just targeting a little bit of myopia, like a minus 0.75, and putting in Mono. you know, monofocal lens so he doesn't have to pay a ton of money and then just be disappointed that uh, this is where we are, so. And these the patients end up really hyperopic to these yeah. steep patients. And so, you know, you wanna run, run like the cane keratoconus formula if you're gonna put, um, you know, I don't know what the ICA would end up being, but for the, and even then, these patients who are above, um, you know, 55 diopters, um, we still get very strange results. We get two diopters of hyperopia, three diopters of myopia. So anybody over 55 to 58 diopters, even those uh, keratoconus formulas um, don't always nail the target. So once again, the burden's on you, whatever lens you choose, um, you know, to counsel them about. It may need to be exchanged. You know, um, in, a, in a case like this, the aptera, one of, I think it, even if he needed a corneal transplant, even if he did happen to get a contact lens that worked, I think could be uh, helpful to him. I will say for the IOL calculation, the gas perm overfraction method is still a reasonable option in a, in a situation like this. And for post-RK, I mean, sometimes when you get those nice little thin incisions and you can tell there's no epithelial plugs, they haven't been eye rubbers, they, they oftentimes still want a premium implant. And we've had amazing luck with EDOF and light adjustability in RK patients who aren't eye rubbers. Once you start getting epithelial plugging, it starts to be a different story. And then of course, when you see something on this spectrum, this is a keratoconus patient. Yeah, so make sure you send some votes in. Uh, all of our online folks and everybody who's here in the audience here, make sure you take a quick picture and, and just kind of vote with who you're, who you're agreeing with in terms of uh, how they would, they would handle this. You know, for me personally, 
Um, I was dying to put an IC8 aphthera in this patient. That way I could come to a conference like this and show you what a hero I am. You know, when you call Florian Kretz in Germany and when you talk to Carl Stonecipher who was part of the, the trials and did a bunch, you know, you know, they would really encourage you and say, gosh, you know, I've seen a patient just like this and they are 2025 J3 and it's an absolute miracle. And I have put in some IC8 aphtheras in patients similar to this. Uh, who it was a, just an absolute silver bullet. And then I put in some uh, that it was the opposite and you're all of a sudden in a lot of trouble. So, you know, I think that's the big challenging thing is, you know, a lot of the conferences that will come to, I just presented this in, in New York, you know, the other day we had a, sort of a symposium about how it seems like now that we have these two options between LAL and IC8, it's kind of like the answer for everything complex, right? Because that's what you're going to present. But boy, you can still get in trouble. And so sometimes, you know, your plain old monofocal might not, might not be a bad idea. So what did I do? Um, well, I called my cornea doc and I said, will you let me put an IC8 in this guy? And the cornea doc said, Blake, this guy's heading towards a transplant, exactly like all of you predicted. He said, he said, you know, do you know how to do a cornea transplant? I was like, well, not since residency. I don't want to do another one. I, I can't do that. And he goes, well, well, I'm going to be the one I have to do it. So I don't want to do that. And if I do, what I need to know is, is that if I have to do an IOL exchange afterwards to help this patient, it needs to be as easy as possible. So he asked that I do a simple uh, three-piece monofocal right there in the sulcus that he can easily, you know, exchange if he needs to. Um, and so that's what we did. Um, there was a, if you look at that central cornea there, you see a 40 diopter swing uh, in, in their sill. And so to your point, I think you mentioned, you know, who knows exactly where that, you know, small aperture is going to line up. And, and, and so it's a proof, of, you know, 1.5 diopters. So God knows, you know, what it's going to be. And so for the, that made sense to me. And, uh, and so that's what we, we, we really chose just to do that monofocal right there in the sulcus. And, and, and if and when they get a transplant, it'll be easy to explant uh, and, and get a better fitting lens once everything kind of settles down. So long term, this is still a young-ish patient. I thought that was, uh, that made a lot of sense to me, and that's what I did. And so, you know, you see the uh, scleral here um, at the bottom uh, fitting beautifully. You know, in my opinion, there really is no IOL that gives you better quality of vision than a well-fit scleral with a monofocal lens in these types of folks. And at our practice, we're lucky to have the, the highest volume uh, 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 scleral fitter in our state. Um, and it's, it's such a joy to have that, you know. Yeah, no, we have some great scleral lens optometrists as well. Why didn't you put it in the bag? Yeah. Uh, so his thought was is that it would be easier for him to fish it out of the sulcus than in the bag. Hmm. You know, it, it's better said. to put it in the bag, probably just from, a, oh, yeah, from our perspective. Um, you know, I like the LI, I like this because it's a silicone lens, and so you know it, it can be easy to take out. You can also clip the haptics um, and put it in. The problem with the sulcus lens and eyes like this is like if they have a long white to white, they don't they decenter. Huh. Um, and so unless you're going to optic capture it, um, you have to be a little bit careful. And so I think there's a lot of options. If you do a PK later on, you can piggyback it with an acrylic lens. You can clip the haptics, put another lens in. Um, so I would go within the bag, actually. And that's in what I would bag. tell my cataract surgeons who refer to me. That's good to know. Yeah, so I just did what my cornea guy said. And my cornea guy, when he has problems, actually sends it to Sumitra at Baylor. No, all his cornea guys. <laughs> so I'll let them, I'll let them, let them know that you <laughs> totally disagree with... Uh, uh, what he chose. So it looks like we have a winner now. Um, so we're going to skip through this uh, last case and uh, 
we're going to um, uh, uh, see who our champion is. So it looks like we have already I've already got a uh, an answer here. Okay, I'm scrolling to see who the winner is. Sumitra, oh. <laughs> the winner. Woohoo! <laughs> I, I will say this is like speech, the most speech, this speech, is the most speech, impressive speech, panel. Speech. I feel like I just learned a bunch with Vance and Kendall. So it's been really fun to be up here with you guys. I thought you did a fantastic job, and I think that uh, you know, um, I, for me, um, it's been it's been great sort of hosting this KOL knockout over the past several months, and and. Um, it's, it, I appreciate Evolve and I appreciate the, the grant from Alcon to, to sort of get us all together in a beautiful place like this, a historic place. Um, and what I've learned is that there is not, you know, just one way to skin a cat. It's, it, there may be six, seven, eight, nine ways to skin a cat. And, and if you're going to do the skinning, uh, make sure you're prepared for what comes next, you know, because, you know, there are lenses and there are lasers where, yes, most of the time it works quite well, but you have to be prepared when it doesn't, what's your backup plan? And then what's your backup of the backup plan? We had a couple cases like that tonight. Um, it, it's not something that you think of right away, but through learning from colleagues like yourselves over the past you know, uh, a couple episodes of this show, um, that's, been, that's been beneficial for me. So we all need to think about that. If we're gonna be refractive cataract surgeons, truly, refractive cataract surgeons, at the end of the day, to your point, you can't leave folks on the 10-yard line. If they're gonna pay you cash money, you gotta get in the end zone. They, got, they gotta be, there's a difference between I'm 20 happy and I'm 20 ecstatic, you know? Um, one is a, a, a practice killer, one's a practice builder. And that should be the name of the game um, anytime we take on a, a challenging case like some of the ones that, that we presented tonight. So. Um, I want to uh, thank everybody uh, for coming. I want to thank everybody online uh, for showing up for this and, uh, and everybody here in person as well. And lastly, uh, my amazing panel, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you.